I started at the top. Like I started literally in Las Vegas and I think there was a lot of pressure, but it was also wonderful because I was exposed to the very best in the world. Welcome to the Women in Magic podcast, where we explore the meaning of magic in a brand new way. Through awesome interviews with amazing guests, we'll do a glittery deep dive into the topics of magic, mentalism, performance, creativity, spirituality, intuition, and entertainment to peel back the curtain and look at the power and role that magic plays in all of our lives. Through shining the spotlight on incredible magicians and masters of their craft across the world, together we'll feel completely inspired by their insightful lessons, hilarious stories, and wild adventures. Thank you for joining me on this magical journey. Joining me today is Connie Boyd, who has been a leader and innovator in magic for more than 20 years, delivering award-winning performances on stages in Las Vegas and across Europe and Asia. In 2016, she became a consultant, director, mentor, writer, and producer of magic shows featuring female talent. As a pandemic project, Connie created a YouTube channel called Magical Women with Connie Boyd, which became the world's only resource dedicated to documenting female magicians. Connie is a contributing writer for Vanish magazine, and in 2022, she was presented with a special fellowship award by the Academy of Magical Arts and Magic Castle in Los Angeles for her efforts to expand the parameters of the community of magicians. Connie Boyd, it is amazing to be with you. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here supporting women in magic. Woo, yes. I'd love to start with a question that is big and beautiful. What does magic mean to you? For me personally, it's curiosity and everybody has a tangible of what is normal or believable and it's suspending that and disbelieving what you know to be true. Now your career, you started as a ballerina and then you were injured and then you were an aerialist dancer and you were injured and then you discovered magic. Do you look back and believe that it was all divinely orchestrated for you that way? Absolutely. If I had it to do again, I wouldn't change anything. At the time when I injured my, it started with tendonitis in my ankles and I was a special student at the National Ballet of Canada and I was on scholarships. So there was a lot of pressure to achieve unrealistic goals basically. And I didn't report that I had an injury and it just escalated into something that was not manageable. So it was pretty devastating. And at the time I didn't even cope with it. I just ended up auditioning and getting a job in a circus and going forward. But looking back, yeah, it was emotionally a big U-turn. I'm so grateful for that U-turn. Longevity as a ballerina, it's really difficult. I love dance and I love classical uh, dance. It will always be one of my first loves, but it's a tough life and it's a very short lifespan. And Mm. magic allows me to use every skill that I've ever developed in my entire life, whether it's aerial skills, juggling skills, dance skills. Um, I took architectural drafting in school so I can read a blueprint. All of those things that, you you know, are random in the universe that all of a sudden go, oh, now it makes sense. I'm in the right place. I love that. How, How did ballet and dance influence the magic that you created? It's interesting because... I am such a backward performer (laughs) compared to most people. And that has been the story of my life. I started my magic career in Las Vegas, which very few people, that's like the dream. And that's where I literally started my magic career because I was already working there in a juggling act. And it was a magician within a show that actually saw something in me and noted me watching his phenomenal levitation and suggested that I become a magician. 
And then it was really unusual because the person that inspired him to be a magician was actually a female magician called Cleopatra. So it was like this just oh, wow. crazy story that um, I was destined to be a magician. I started at the top. Like I started literally in Las Vegas. And I think there was a lot of pressure, but it was also wonderful because I was exposed to the very best in the world. So that was my starting bar. Like that's where I started. That was what I knew to be true that I had to, you know, at least compete with those the level of that talent. Two questions from that. One is when you start at the top, where else do you go? And then the second question is when he suggested you become a magician, what was your first response? I had no interest in magic. Um, we have a Canadian magician. His name is Doug Henning, and he was extremely popular in the 70s and I want to say even early 80s. I might be wrong about that. I liked magic, but I, I was not drawn to it. There are other forms of theater that I actually preferred. But it was Barclay Shaw, he was the magician, and it was his levitation. And he floated a woman so close to the audience, you could you could almost reach out and touch her. And it wasn't like any of the you know staged magic that you've seen in the past. He was almost demonic, and he had such a presence, and he literally controlled her, and she quivered under his presence. And so it was a complete different presentation to anything I had ever seen, and the magic was flawless and then he placed her into a glass plexiglass casket and so she floated in this casket so close to the audience i keep saying that it was like pure magic and it just i'd never seen anything like it and that i really truly became a magician for what that made me feel wow it was wonderful and then the the second point question that you asked well i mean, I mean when i say i started at the top i started performing in las vegas and that's many magicians dream but I had bigger dreams. I wanted to perform my own show and I wanted to be a headliner and I wanted to create my own material. And so from that start, and again, I suspect it was being surrounded by such fantastic talent that it inspired me to be bigger and grander and try harder. And, and also being a ballerina and having that discipline and also determination to, you know, you're one of many and the only thing that makes you excel is perspiration so i worked really hard amazing what's the wildest thing that ever happened to you on stage <laughs> um, but the tone of your laugh is like i don't know if i should share this <laughs> i have so many i think it's interesting i just interviewed she's another magician based out of las vegas her name is joan decor and she's a veteran magician even though she's young she just arrived in vegas as a teenager and she has worked nonstop and she was mentored by Johnny Thompson and Eugene Berger. So she's got serious skill sets. And she said, amateurs, this is a great quote, amateurs will tell you about the best show they ever had. Professionals will tell you about the worst shows they've ever had. And so when you ask that question, it's a great question because it taps into what she had just told me. I think the most memorable show that people for years afterwards that saw it just couldn't stop laughing i had a, an illusion in the show and it's called we called it bunny de boy it was an oversized glamo box and we put uh, produced a big giant texas bunny who was enormous and then we put him into the blammo box which is this for magicians or do i need to explain what a blammo box no is? please explain it yeah it's okay. for everyone so a blammo box has uh, four sides and a lid, and the front is a screen. So whatever you place into the box, the audience can see it. When you remove the lid, 
the sides come down and something else appears and it happens instantly in front of the audience's eyes. So it's a really visual strong illusion. And it started as a small illusion, like from a doves to a cat or a rabbit. Then they took that premise and they actually developed it, magic prop builders, to actually produce a person. And in my case, since I'm a woman, I chose to produce a man. So we called it Bunny Sport. <laughs> that's, that's the background of it. <laughs> Our bunny, we were in the process of putting in another illusion that ended up being my signature piece that I was the most known in the magic community for. So we were in the process of segueing this out of the show. So normally, when you're working 12 shows a week, in a production show. I was at that point, I was in the Follies Berger at the Tropicana Hotel in Las Vegas. And that was the spot that originally Lance Burton held. And when Lance Burton went to his own show, I started substituting for him when he would go out to do other television engagements. To, he was trying to earn more money to you know, promote his show and, and put a show on, a full show, evening show. And so I started substituting for him. And then when the position became available, the management gave me that position. So we slowly, you know, introduced myself into the show. And then that's how I ended up with that fantastic spot. So I was in the Follies Berger at the Tropicana Hotel. And I was performing Doves. I had a really great duck production. And we had this Bunny to Boy routine that was getting segued out of the show for something that was stronger magic and more of a signature piece to me. So we did not have a substitute for the bunny, big bunny. And we were on break at Christmas and the poor bunny had a heart attack and died. Now this is terrible. In oh, Las wow. Vegas, they are very strict about using animals within the show. So the bunny had to have an autopsy, the USDA is involved. We had regular visits to my home and into the theater to make sure that everything was correct and that they weren't mistreated. So he had an autopsy and uh, he had a heart attack, he died of natural causes thankfully he died on vacation he wasn't even in the show so i was in a panic i was home i'm canadian so i was visiting my family at christmas for canada and we were in a panic and trying to find at christmas time a bunny to replace the bunny and the new illusion was going in like the second week in january it's a terrible story so my bookkeeper's neighbor had a bunny that we could borrow so we borrowed okay. the bunny and it was on stage, animals that are light colored, they read much bigger. Animals that are darker colored, it's harder for lighting. So for example, a white duck is more interesting on stage than a brown duck, just from the point of view that the audience can see it clearly and you can light it better. This little bunny was a little brown bunny. His name was Coyote and he was this big, cute little thing, little tiny bunny. So I said, okay, okay, good. <laughs> I have no choice. <laughs> I'll take anything. So we take the bunny and we put the bunny in and we rehearse and it's, you know, the box he comes out of is huge and there's this bunny, but I'm, you know, normally he's big, he's this big and I try to sell it like it's the big bunny, but he's miniature. <laughs> so we do all the rehearsals and he's fine. We do this first show, he's perfect. So I call it, uh, the people that own it. I said, thank you so much. You know, um, I really appreciate it. Coyote is doing a great job second show <laughs> we were minutes into the production how it works in a, in a production show in las vegas is that there are dancers and then at a set time you go on you do your spot at what they're doing is they're setting things behind you usually scenography things are happening and then the dancers come back on and they do another they're continue the show and at that point we had two or three variety acts depending this time we had two myself and a comedian so I produce little coyote and I smile and I look at the audience as you do and I feel wet 
and I look and this little oh. bunny is urinating and it's going in an arc and you couldn't do this in a million years. It's going right between my breasts. And I'm like, so I take the <laughs> and I take the bunny out. I told you, <laughs> you can't, you can't make the story up. <laughs> I take the bunny oh and God. I place him forward. He continues. This little bunny makes this giant puddle on stage. Now keep in mind, dancers are coming and they're dancing. They can't slip and fall on bunny urine. So I stink. I'm covered in this stuff. Oh. Performing, and the technicians are now out trying to move around us, squeegeeing the, the, the stage because the show must go on. So the next number was a number. It was a Van Halen suspension number. And the boy is, you know, in my face. And you could just see him going, because I smell so bad. <laughs> I just stink. <gasps> and that. Did the audience crack it when it was died. peeing on you? you couldn't. Yeah. You could see it. Like, you know, with the lights, you could see the beautiful arc. And <laughs> everybody that oh my gosh. It, they thought it was the funniest thing they'd ever seen in their lives. And was there part of you that was just like, how can we replicate that? <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> I never want to <laughs> and there's a massage in theater. You never follow children in animal acts or uh, they can upstage you. There's some massage about that. And yeah, it is true. <laughs> so anyway. You were upstaged. Uh, yeah. So the bunny was replaced. <laughs> the next day we found one and we sourced one way out in North Las Vegas and got a, another bunny. Wild as anything. I was bloody from him scratching me because he didn't, he wasn't very tame, but the alternative was the urinating bunny. So was- wow. So the new wild one at least controlled his bladder a little bit yeah, better? Yeah, never. Yeah. It never okay. happened. Like, I'd, I'd been performing for years. <laughs> it's never happened that, you know? And we always, with animals on stage, you know, you try to exercise them before just to make sure, you know, again, particularly when it's not your show, when you're in the middle of a production show and there's dancers and acrobats, if it's a circus show, whatever, you can't leave the stage dirty. Mm. And a lot of people don't understand that. For example, there are magicians that have these very intricate competing acts, but when they leave the stage, there's umbrellas and streamers and confetti, and and you could never book that act in that environment. Yeah. Because you can't strike fast enough or somebody's gonna get injured, you know, so. So aside from bunny urine, What's one magical piece of information you wish you knew at the start of your magical career? If I could do it all over again, I would have a self-contained performance that I didn't need any assistance and that I could perform myself. I would start with Wow. And I started okay. with assistance and grand illusion and because that's that big, big. And later I did develop self-contained solo material, but I didn't start with that. And I think it's really wise to have a really strong foundation act that you can build and you know layers upon. So that would be my advice to everybody. Is that because it's more rewarding or is that because it's easier because you don't have to rely on other people? It's relying on other people. It's financially, it makes more sense. And at that time, keep in mind, I came from theater. So I was really comfortable on stage. I still am most comfortable on stage than, for example, close up. I- but on stage, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> For anyone who's listening, how do I describe the face that Connie just made? It was almost like similar to when the bunny would have peed on you, that face of close-up, close-up magic for you. <laughs> I learned several effects, close-up effects for television, for promotion, because it's important. 
And I think many entertainers feel like this. I'm a bit shy. So to go to strangers I don't know and say, hey, mm. would you like to see a card trick or produce something? Or It just intimidates me. Now, if they want me to do something on television, I have no problem with that. That's com- I'm comfortable yeah. with that. I guess it's a perception, isn't it? You know, Is it the idea that, oh, they might say no? No, I guess it's they might say no. I just, in any environment, if I'm in the airport, I don't just randomly talk to people. Mm. If there's a connection and you're experiencing something at the same time, and you then, I, then I'll maybe speak, but I'm not somebody outgoing that's extroverted. I guess I'm not yeah. extroverted. Yeah. Yeah. What was the Vegas experience like? Because we all dream about what it could be like and how amazing it would be to live on the strip and the bling and the noise. What is the experience like? And how do you, how did you balance the nights with the days? Like, how did you find your beautiful momentum of relaxing and then putting energy out? I was really fortunate because I started in Las Vegas in the late 80s. And so I caught the end of an era. So I was able to see the Rat Pack and I was able to experience those fantastic feather productions that the corporations took over and all of that sort of went away. And and also people aged and they couldn't perform as they did before. So I am so fortunate that I got to see Sammy Davis Jr. and Frank Sinatra and Anne Margaret and Shirley MacLaine. Like I I saw them live. Yeah, I get goosebumps just thinking about it. You see performers like that and their presence on stage, it stays with you. And Unfortunately, in 2023, we don't have that foundation of performers, live performances, what I'm talking about, because there's just not the venues that there were back then. You know, of course, there was television as a medium. There was no internet, obviously. Even the television as a medium, it was rare you would do maybe something on television, but there were only so many networks and so many variety shows that you might potentially be featured on. So live performance was the bread and butter of most stellar performers, yeah. you know, superstars, really. And so uh, they were charismatic and just, they were brilliant. And you could learn, I learned so much from them. And so I am extremely grateful that I was able to catch that. And also there were like so many magicians in town that were wonderful, like uh, with David Copperfield and, um, and Penn and & Teller and Siegfried and & Roy and Rand Spurton and Joseph Gabriel and Shimada and I know I'm missing a slew of them, but you know, I've just named seven right off the top of my head. Yeah, wow. I've been working every single night there that were really, really, really good. I was probably most influenced by David Copperfield because his magic was modern and it was theatrical, but it wasn't over the top like some magicians were. It sort of tapped into my style and what I, I liked. I liked magic with real items that, you know, told stories. And so, um, yeah, I, I probably a most of those magicians I just mentioned, David would have influenced me the most. Mr. Shimada taught me my doves. Like, how many people can say that, you know? Yeah, wow. So I was really lucky. Amazing. And in 2016, you moved from performing to consulting and mentoring and directing and writing and producing. What magic did that unleash in you to be able to use your skills in brand new ways? Well, I started the first major consulting job I had was in 2005, I believe. So that's that was the start. And then that led to a magic production where I was within uh, the whole company of dancers. Up to that point, when they booked, my show was called The Beauty of Magic. And when we booked that in the United States or wherever the show, it was myself and usually three assistants and maybe stage manager. So it was a pretty small show. Uh, I think it was 2006 or seven. 
they booked that booked me into a show where I had nine or 10 dancers. And so we had so much fun to play with. And the production company was from South Africa. So they taught me so much. There's a big place in South Africa called Sun City. And they, the, one of the women was at one point entertainment director there and had produced shows there. So, you know, make extravaganza shows. And so I learned a lot about audiovisual and, and pacing a show and working with dancers. And, and it's very different. You know, being a dancer is one thing, but actually directing a cast and directing the technicians and trying to take what's in your head and make it happen with a large group of people in a short period of time. It takes a bit of organization and skill. And so I learned a lot. And so by 2016, I had four shows that I had produced, The Illusion Show, A Chicks with Trick Show, The Beauty of Magic Show, which was my show that I taught and mentored another girl to do, and Illusionista, which was um, a show with a, a female magician. So it was a play on illusions and the Latin version of it, which is Illusionistas. Amazing. By 2016, I was ready. I didn't want to be on stage anymore. I, even doing this, being in front of the camera, I really prefer to be behind the camera and let other younger, <laughs> more talented people take the stage. I'm really happy with that. The way that you're contributing to the industry is essential. So, yeah, I would remove that last little passage that you just said. <laughs> That's very funny. <laughs> it was hard for me because I had from 2016 until the pandemic, I hadn't been in front of a camera. I had been yeah. behind the camera. I was mentoring and directing all this talent and having the time of my life. And then pandemic hit and literally I recognized that I would never have what I had pre-pandemic. I knew it was never coming back. And unfortunately, my prediction was correct. <laughs> At that point in time, we had three shows out. We had three shows out. One was in storage. So three shows, and of the three shows, none of them exist anymore. You know, yeah. None of them were rebooked. It was just, it's the end of an era. But when one door closes, another door opens. And da, da, da. so I just used that off time and tried to use the skills that I have and the love I have for magic as an art form and to try to promote that. And there was no one promoting women in magic anywhere in the world. There is a podcast called Shizam. And that podcast started with Chris Hendricks and Caleb Drescher. And they were very good about promoting awareness and diversity within the magic community. Because as young women, they felt that they needed a voice and they needed to express this, their opinions. And I really think they made a big difference. And, and people weren't doing it consciously, they just weren't aware. Yeah, uh, I think in that's a general, in most cases, that has been proven to be correct. But there was no one documenting women in magic, past and present. And there are a group of magicians that are brilliant, some of which are still performing, like Faye Presto. But she's in her 70s, and she still performs. Tina Leonard, Diana Zimmerman, Juliana Chen. They're not mid-age, and they're not <laughs> old, but you know, I wanted to be able to document them. And that's what started and sort of triggered this. And then I discovered a whole slew of young talented magicians who are just cutting edge that are just forging through forward and really 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 talented and then there's the future there's some young up and coming yeah. talent too that's just brilliant so it was eye-opening for me as well i thought i knew what i was getting into but i had not a clue so just to wrap that up for anyone who's listening so connie through the pandemic launched her pandemic project and a youtube channel called magical women with connie boyd where she interviews as she just said, women past, present, future, current, evolving in magic. So you've just said you didn't know what you were getting into. 
What did you get into? What has the experience been like? Everybody talks about jumping down the hole in Alice in Wonderland, but I literally did it. Like I say, <laughs> I, I've been a magician for over 30 years. I've been mentoring female magicians since 2008. I really thought I had a grasp on it, and it is overwhelming how many women there are in magic. Last year, I was asked by Max Maven, who isn't with us anymore, he asked me to be part of his FISM uh, lecture series on history of magic. And my lecture was called How Women Influence Magic. And that sounds like a lofty Amazing. title. But what happened is, unfortunately, most of the people that created the books that are Magic's historic timeline were men, and they wrote out the women. And there have been women in magic from the beginning. Phenomena in BC, she, she actually invented hexameter poetic verse and she used uh, ventriloquism and vague predictions to predict the future. And she dealt with generals and senators and in her time. She was a very formidable, powerful person. And she trained future oracles at Delphi that in turn for 1,000 years continued that trend or that position. So, I mean, nobody can top a 1,000 years, but very few people mention her. And there's, mm. um, it just goes on and on and on how many women truly did influence magic and, and did influence what we perceive as magic today. And here's a fun example, and that is a trivia question in my talk, but Harry Blackstone Sr. is credited with the dancing handkerchief. Now, for people that don't know what a dancing handkerchief is, it's a handkerchief, but all of a sudden it comes to life. So an inanimate object becomes animated and it frolics about the stage, it might go into a bottle, and it has a great personality. Everyone credited him as that being his piece. Well, lo and behold, it was actually invented by a woman and her name was Anna Ava Fay, And she was a spiritualist. And in her version of it, the handkerchief came to life because it was possessed by spirits. So it makes sense. Yeah. Harry Blackstone Sr. saw it and that's what inspired his presentation. Mm. So those are the wonderful facts that we've discovered. Like there was a magician Minerva who was a threat to Harry Houdini such a threat there's all kinds of stories that we can't say if they're true or they're not but what we know is that he actually when she was on tour at the same time he was in the uk he actually trained another magician from germany called oceana to do the exact work she did and follow her in towns to discredit her like that's how wow. threatened he was by her during that time and there are more than 70 female escapologists during the time of houdini that there's a list of them. Um, Gary Hunt is a historian, and he's created this list of all of these female magicians. Now, they're from all uh, escapologists, from all genres. Like They're not A++, all of them. Some of them might have been in a sideshow, but they're, mm. they're, they're 70, more than 70. Wow. So you start understanding all of this history, and it's a rich, fun history when you start jumping down that rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it's pretty exciting. Are you looking for amazing new magic effects? My friends at Global Magic Shop have an incredible range of hand-picked exclusive products directly from magic creators. These unique magic and mentalism effects, coupled with their huge online catalogue, provide the perfect additions to any street magic, stage magic, close-up magic, corporate magic or party repertoire. Head to globalmagicshop.com.au and use the coupon Jordana for a 10% discount for all new customers. So back to your point on uh, women were written out of the history books. Why was that? The primary reason is that most of the people writing the books were men and they wrote about what they know. That tends to be what a lot of people do. So they wrote about the popular magicians at the time that they knew. 
one of the best examples is Adelaide Herman. So Adelaide Herman in the 1800s, her husband was a very famous magician, Alexander Herman, and he died unexpectedly. And huge posters of him and huge people have collections of him. But very few people knew about Adelaide Herman. Fortunately for us, there was a magician, author, and magic historian, and her name is Margaret Steele. And she passionately researched Adelaide Herman, and she looked for buried treasure, which was her memoirs, 65 Years of Magic, I believe it is. So she looked for them, and she discovered them, and then she wrote a book about Adelaide Herman, and it's a fascinating read if anybody is interested in magic. And it, that story has inspired several different movies and short movies because she was a huge celebrity and superstar in the 1880s but what's fascinating is okay her husband dies she tries to continue the show with his nephew it doesn't work they, they're not compatible she's on the brink of bankruptcy so what do you do do you sell the show no she decides in the victorian era she's going to become a female magician soloist and she's going to become a superstar and almost overnight she did like she's yeah, formidable. Wow. And so she performed into her 70s. She was a huge star in Europe and in the United States. And the most important thing, like she surpassed other shows and magic shows, but other, you know, giant shows. But she surpassed her husband's fame, star power, and magic career longevity because she performed into her 70s. So that yeah, is wow. just like remarkable. And yet, if Margaret Steele hadn't written about her, mm. all that was written was that was his his wife and she was a dancer and she did the illusions, you know? So you're saying there is a, probably a lot that we still don't know and we might never know. And we're discovering more and more. There are some really fascinating magic historians and they are men and women. For example, and this is a recent one. This just happened in 2020. It was discovered the first magician who appeared in Las Vegas. Now, there were many magicians that said they were the first and were billed as the first and, you know, have been written in magazines that they were the first. But he discovered that the very first magician was an 18-year-old magician, and it was a woman. It was Gloria wow. Day, and she was a child prodigy. Her dad, Leo Metzner, taught her magic since she was a little kid. And she, this is even better, like I call it the piece de resistance. She is still living in Las Vegas and she turned 100 years young last year. And I've oh, met her, wow. we've interviewed her. She's a firecracker. I mean, she's really spunky, spiky, <laughs> just full of it. And very funny and charming and a big flirt with the boys. You know, she's just <laughs> wonderful. But 10 years ago, you couldn't even imagine that to be true. So it is yeah. changing and it's changing for the good. And it's because people are trying to make an effort to learn more and be more correct, like Gary Hunt and like Lance Rich that discovered that. And there's quite a few, oh, that I'll tell you a little bit about Vanish International Magic Magazine, because this is important. Vanish International Magazine, their publisher and editor, his name is Paul Romhani. And he is a huge supporter of diversity and he's just incredibly creative. And since September 2020, 20, no, August 2020, I've been writing monthly Magical Woman articles for him. Amazing. And as part of this project, we discovered another like-minded individual who is a historian, and his name is Sebastian Bazou. And he is out of Art Frank, France. So he's French. It's a really artsy, 
he also does a lot of interviews in French with female magicians, and but they do all kinds of interesting things and uh, history of magic and current magic in France. And he had compiled an essay. And also he has his own personal record and photos and catalogs of various female magicians. So he gave that to me and I helped him rewrite it into English. And then we proposed it to Paul, who in turn, at first he thought he would make it an issue part of Vanish Magic Magazine, but then he determined that he would make it a special edition. And what he did is it's free for anyone. And I will, I don't know how we are going to do this on a podcast, but I can give <laughs> you this QR code for the free special edition Female Magicians Through the Centuries. Amazing. And so anybody that is interested in women in magic, if they want to learn a little bit more and it costs you nothing other than clicking on a, on a QR code, it's something remarkable. It's something I'm really proud to be a part of. And then Paul took it a step further and he made a cover image that was a mosaic of female magicians past and present to form the headshot of British illusionist. And her name is Josephine Lee. She's a beautiful blonde illusionist in out of the UK. And so it, it's a pretty powerful poster that he created. And that's the cover image in the magazine. Yeah. Which is behind Connie right now and looks absolutely stunning. Stunning. So you are now a historian in Women in Magic. What would you say some of the most remarkable impacts over the decades have been from female magicians? I just cited, of course, Adelaide Herman. Adelaide, yeah. There's so many interesting stories. For example, there was a magician from Belgium and her name is Susie Wandas and she was called the Lady with the Fairy Fingers. And Kobe Van Herwigen, he wrote, and his father co-wrote a book about Susie Originally, I believe it was in Dutch first, and now you can also buy it in English. And she was a formidable magician. She had fantastic manipulation skills, and she was a magic star in Europe, and she became a magic star in the United States. However, she became a magician because she was born into a performance family, and she and her mother performed together originally as the Wandas, as sisters, even though it was a mother-daughter team, they performed as the Wandas. And the mother, when they were considering to put together this magic show, they went to see uh, Telma Mercedes. Now, Telma Mercedes was a very skilled magician and part of a trio with a big show. And uh, Telma was very good at coin manipulation, and she had a career that was over 30 years. But she actually was the catalyst for Susie Wandas to become the skilled manipulative magician that she was. So that's kind of neat because one connected to the other. Yeah. You have another one that's kind of interesting with a legacy and that would be Ionia, who was called the goddess of, of mystery. And her posters are about among the most valuable in the golden age of magic. So she had just fantastic images. And although she only performed from 1910 to 1913, she made a big impact. <laughs> and her mother was Julia Ferret, who was also known as a magician, Miss Edith. And then many people that follow magic will know her as Okita. So Okita and her daughter were both female magicians. So that's yeah. kind of, there's all kinds of interesting sort of little trivia facts that connect. Yeah, awesome. there's a lot. <laughs> it's like the mosaic behind you. Yeah. <laughs> You are very well accustomed with looking backwards. What excites you the most about looking forwards when it comes to women in magic? There are 
so much happening right now. Last year we had FISM. FISM is the equivalent of the Olympics for magic and it's held every three years. And the competitors, just like the Olympics, they compete in their individual countries. And then those that come in first and I believe second are may be invited to participate in FISM, which is at a host city and it can be any country basically in the world. Last year it was in Quebec City in Canada for the first time in North America since 1948. So there were quite a, a more female magicians competing than usual, but there was one that actually came in second in general magic, and her name is Ding Yang, and she has been mentored by Juliana Chen. Juliana Chen is the first person, not woman, person of Asian descent to win first at FISM, and that was in 1997. Oh, wow. And she is the first woman to win first in the manip and, and only woman to win first in the manipulation category to date. So she was mentored by Juliana Chen and she does dove manipulation in acrobatics. And she was also awarded, I believe it was the most either innovative or creative, I can't remember off the top of my head, her award. But so that's pretty impressive that she got that last year. Also yeah. competing in FISM was Leah Kyle. Now Leah Kyle did something that nobody's ever done. And she was the first person in America's Got Talent ever in 16 seasons to get a golden buzzer in the audition rounds. So anybody that saw her magic, she literally changes clothes in front of you. There's no yeah. cloth. There's no, it, it's visually just dynamic. And I was really lucky. I got to see her perform live in the America's Got Talent show in Las Vegas. And it's as impressive live as it is on television. It's not a camera trick. It's really uh, brilliant. So, I mean, that's a first there. Helen Coughlin from Australia. Yeah. She Love is Helen. the only person to win five, I repeat, five Foolis trophies from Penn & Teller Foolis. What a hero. Heroic team there. Yeah, yeah. She is just brilliant. And her father, Arthur Coughlin, he's an inventor, but I would say he's a magical genius his concepts. He's just launched a new book. It's a, a version of the book that he originally published and they reprinted it, but they've included some more material about some of the things that Helen actually performed on Penn and Teller on her first performance. So they're just wonderful human beings and the really nice, genuine people. So yeah. there's a first. I'm trying to think off the top of my head. There's a lot. Oh, Jennifer, I believe we say her last name is Choi, C-H-O-I, Jennifer Choi. She just won six Guinness World Book Records in one day. She is, I want to call her a danger act and a magician. So she does whip cracking mm. and fire eating. And she did more than 30, I don't remember exactly how many, but more than 30 riffle shuffles in a minute. Wow. And I know to be true, but I cannot speak about there are more coming up. <laughs> wow. They just haven't been publicized yet. So yeah, and these Amazing. women are making huge headway in the world. There are a slew of performing magicians that are headlining on cruise ships, headlining in every major country. Uh, Spain has dozens, and Dania Diaz actually was invited. She performed and was a finalist on America's Got Talent Spain, but she was one of the, she was the first Latina woman to ever, magician to appear on the champions of America's Got Talent in the United States. And she does yeah. beautiful card manipulation highly skilled that tells a story so she tells a story and as she's telling the story her cards reflect what she's saying it happens right before your eyes it's really really special because she transcends that barrier of a screen and, and actually makes you feel something so she's i mean she's remarkable 
And yeah, yeah UK, Scandinavia, you've got Carolyn Raven. Germany has Alana. Alana was the first, I believe, the first woman to place and win uh, FISM in Germany. Competitions in Germany. I, I think it's the World Championships. Alana was the first person to win first as a woman in the World Championships in Germany. So there is just so much talent in the world right now. It's yeah, a global amazing. movement. I'm just at the moment researching women and magic in Asia. It's not new. There have been always women in magic in Asia, but some of the women that are at this moment performing, their skill sets are just through the roof. So there are a lot of women in magic and there always have been. Why is the ratio, in your opinion, of males to females in the industry so imbalanced? I personally think it's the lack of a visual role model. There hasn't mm. been one female magician probably since Adelaide Herman, and that was pre-television, so we can't really include her. There hasn't been anybody since we have a medium of television or social media that has become an iconic superstar that really influences young women, as other celebrities have done in the music industry and other industries. So I'm um, actors, but I really think that's been, and I think it's going to happen. Ken Gillette has a great quote and he says, the next great magician is going to be a woman. And I believe that. I really yeah. do. Uh, there have been great magicians, but I mean, someone that transcends, that becomes internationally popular. That's what we need to have happen. And then I think you're going to get even more of a, an acceptance and awareness. Yeah. And then it's, it's going to generate forward. Because up till now, even though we aren't really a niche, you're still often booked as that, you know, a female magician. Yes, we are female. And yes, we have to adapt to our physiques and our performance style. And because we're women, of course, we're going to use things that are feminine. If that is what appeals to you as a woman, you have infinite choices of what you can perform. I believe that to be true. And what was your experience of being in that smaller demographic for so many years, especially in Vegas? The highly successful magicians were very kind to me and helped me. And I was very lucky because I was exposed to, to the upper echelon, the top of the top, you know, the cream, let's say. <laughs> I think you mean the cherry on top of the cream. <laughs> exactly. There you go. <laughs> I was thinking of cream rising to the top, but yeah, that would work. <laughs> the magicians that had been in show business for their entire lives resented my success because I hadn't earned it. And they're right. You know, I hadn't studied magic since I was a, a young girl. I can sympathize with how they felt. And I believe that many times I was given opportunities because I was a woman. Now, maybe the door opened because I was a woman. The door stayed open because I had created my own magic style and my own magic. I invented magic that's mine. And it's all of it, most of it is from a woman's perspective. You know, I was the very first woman to, well, the very first magician that I know of to do the self-twister. And I did it because I wanted a routine that I, that was an illusion that I could perform by myself in front of the mm. audience so that they could prepare things behind the screen. And I didn't want something small. I wanted something that I could control myself. So I worked out a way to do the twisting, which is your head twisting 360 and your body all twisted. I worked out a way to do that physically and visually, and that was a success. So those things, I think, begrudgingly over time, you gain their respect. But I can also understand that sometimes show business isn't fair. 
And there are times I lost a job. I lost the Rockettes. I had a manager at the time and we had literally talked about the fine print in the marquees. That's how close the contract was. And they went into the final meeting and everything was set. It was a done deal, supposedly. And they decided in that final meeting for A, politics, and B, they decided that they would prefer to have a man because all the Rockettes were women and the lead performer was a woman and they decided to go with the man. It was a bad decision. But anyway... So obviously Magical Women with Connie Boyd is influencing the next generation of women to come in. Is there anything else the industry can do or we can do to encourage more women to come in? If you have the secret to this, I would be so thrilled to find out what it is. (laughs) I thought we would appeal more to women. I thought we'd appeal more to women's groups. I thought there'd be more interest because it's such an interesting niche story and these women's stories are remarkable what they've done what they've overcome it one is just after the other after the other and very good magician and friend of mine lisa mena she said if you watch all of the magical woman videos it's like getting a bachelor of arts in magic <laughs> because there's so much content and information on all of the uh, on magic yeah. you know past and present and future and so that was i liked that <laughs> But sadly, I don't know the answer. I don't know why we're not getting the interest that we should. If I did, we'd have it. It's not that we don't have the views. You know, we managed to get enough views that we are part of the YouTube program. And we've had some really good hits. Helen Coughlin is one of them. Her foolish performances are on our channel. And it's like tens and tens and tens of thousands of, of views. You know, that's thanks to Helen. Shout out to Helen. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> one of the biggest, the Coglins ad- advocates, they are wonderful, talented, yeah. brilliant human beings. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah. So I don't know. Do you know? No, that's what I'm exploring. It's an open question. It's like, how do we encourage more young women? How do we pique their interest? How do we spark the curiosity? We have a young magician. Her name's Anna de Guzman. Actually, her tag is the Queen of Cardistry. She's 25 years old and she's a social media, another one that's just really active in social media. And I see her all over the world doing magic for various Mm. sport teams. And maybe it's going to be something like that that's going to just, you know, trigger a wave of younger generation. It's not going to be me. It probably isn't going to be you. It's probably going to be just the next one coming up that's really going to be the one that makes it fly. That being said, look at Kate Bush's resurgence uh, she's on her song was used again on stranger things and all of a sudden she became a big hit again so you just never know show business is fickle (laughs) i have had discussions on this topic and something that has come up is that kits are made for men and boys so for me anyway there's no wallets that i would use that are really sexy or blingy enough thumb tips are too big so there is a lot of that stuff in terms of like when we're young a lot of that is geared and oriented towards young boys. It's true. And that's a negative, but it's also a positive because the women that have chosen to pursue magic, they've overcome all those obstacles and they've invented yeah. things. And they've, again, I'll go back to Lisa Mena using the card in the heel of her shoe and saying that a pump, like a stiletto is actually a pocket. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it's true. You know, when you're learning, you, you're not creative, you're learning. And if every image is a boy, that's something interesting. Susie Wanda's published a book about magic. And in her book, clearly it's her hands and it's all women's hands. So that would have been early 1900s, I think. No? Yeah. 
So Connie, you are currently creating a legacy, which is going to, no, seriously, look at your face. You're like, ah, I don't think so. Yeah, you are. Which is being, you know, circulated and has a beautiful ripple effect through the magic industry and beyond. As we close up, how does that actually feel to you to have created something that, well, you, as you said, you're way deeper than you ever thought you would be, but you're discovering miracles along the way. So what does that feel like to contribute to the industry in this beautiful way? I like to give back and I love theater and the magical arts. And uh, this just started as a little project because I have decent editing skills and I thought, well, I'll, I'll try to provide a service where there wasn't one. It has probably been more of a benefit to me than it has to the others because I've learned so much and I've grown so much and respect so much magic in the magic industry. It's people like Max Maven that had the vision to give me an opportunity to lecture at FISM. I had never attended a FISM. I was always working. So FISM to make magic competitions, I was a performing professional. I never went to a FISM. And so to have the opportunity to go to my first FISM and present a lecture, again, start at the top. (laughs) (laughs) It's overwhelming to say the least. Uh, Yeah, I think it's given back to me as much as it has provided information and a resource for others. And I just hope that what we're doing, what we're all doing as a community of women in magic, that we are going to influence a new generation of women to be creative and innovative and to you know defy the odds. And it's not easy, but it is possible because yeah. many women have, were on the backs of the women that have proven it's possible. Amazing. Connie Boyd, it has been an absolute joy to have you on. Absolutely loved it. And I cannot wait until the day that I get to actually meet you in person. Thank you. Oh, me too. (laughs) But we can travel now. (laughs) I know, I know, I know. So it might be a Magic Live or a convention upcoming. And I can't wait for that day. Thank you so much. Pleasure. To learn more about Connie, you can find a link to her website and her social media accounts in the show notes below. Thank you so much for listening and joining our adventure. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a star rating and a review because it will absolutely help spread the magic to so many more people. Catch you next episode.